Good morning, church. So good to be with you on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, let's begin with a brief word of prayer. Father, as, your, as you send rain to water the earth, we ask you now to buy your word to bring moisture to our parched souls. Would you help us to see Jesus as the only one that can quench our spiritual thirst? Help us to have a greater understanding of who he is and to respond in faith. We ask these things in his mighty name. Amen. Water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Many of us have heard that phrase. There's a man who lived it out. It goes by the name of Louis Zamperini. In 1943, he and a crew of 11 were on a search and rescue mission. When his plane went down, he and just a few of the crew members made it out onto some life rafts. And then their ordeal really began. For 47 days, they would try and survive in these little rafts in the open ocean of the Pacific. They had a lot of difficulty to overcome. Lack of food, fighting off sharks, enemy aircraft literally shooting at them, punching holes in their rafts. But by far, the worst thing they had to deal with was thirst. Their water supplies ran out almost immediately, and they dealt with all of the pain and agony of that unmet desire to drink. At one point, they went seven days without rain. Seven long days without anything to quench their thirst. Their, their throats started to swell up. Their lips cracked. They started having visions and dreams of just drinking a glass of water. In his desperation, Zamperini actually prayed to God. He kind of made a bargain with them. He said, God, if you get me out of this, when I get back to land, I'll live for you. Reflecting back on that, he would say that he didn't really know what he meant by those words. But wouldn't you know it? God seemed to have responded to his prayers. A cloud shortly came over their raft, and they started to be able to collect rainwater, and soon they had their thirst satiated. Here's what he said about his first drink after those seven days. He said, with the first taste, I knew I was the wealthiest man in the world. All of us know what it is to be thirsty at some level, some of us have gotten a little closer, maybe by dehydration or heat stroke. We know a little bit more of that strong desire to thirst, to want something so badly that you feel like you will die if you don't get it. And yet the physical thirst is not the only way we desire things, is it? You could speak of thirst in a more metaphorical way. Some of us thirst for knowledge. We want to know more than we do right now. We work really, really hard to understand this world and things in it. Others thirst for acceptance. We want nothing more than to be loved and to find someone that cares about us. Some of us thirst for security. We're just tired about wondering what tomorrow is going to bring. We all at some level have these desires, these thirsts. The only question is, what is the particular desire we want most? And what will happen if we actually have it satisfied? The passage before us shows us Jesus talking about this issue of thirst. 
But Jesus isn't going to be satisfied with telling us that all these lesser thirsts are things worth pursuing. No, he's going to press down into our hearts and show us the true thirst of every human heart. A thirst so deep that many of us don't even know it's there. The thirst to know God and be known by him, to live with him forever. This morning on Easter, we're going to find Jesus showing us three steps to having that deep thirst within each one of us to have that thirst satisfied. Three steps this Easter to a lasting satisfaction that nothing else in this life can give us. Those steps are found in three, three sections of scripture. First in 32 through 36, we'll see the first step is his departure, his departure from us, Jesus leaving this world. The second step is in verses 37 through 39, his offer to us, an offer from Jesus to us. And then finally, in verses 40 through 42, his division of us, his division of us. The choice we must make of who is this Jesus. Let's look in first in verses 32 through 36. Three steps to how you can find this lasting satisfaction deep in your heart. First, his departure from us. We're told in verse 32 that the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, John's gospel at this point is focusing in on at one particular religious party that was going on. It was called the Feast of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. It was a particularly joyous occasion for Jews 2,000 years ago. It was around September, October or so, right as the grape harvest was happening. People loved to go to it. There would be lots of food and lots of drink. It was one of those times where you were proud to be Jewish. You remembered a time when God cared for his people in the wilderness. It was also the last festival in their calendar, so it had this kind of culmination feel to it. Well, Jesus is at this festival. It's about seven days long, and Jesus is here doing something he hasn't really done before. Jesus is now starting to talk about himself openly in a way that will draw the opposition that one day will lead him to the cross. Now, just before our passage this morning, Jesus has really embarrassed a group of religious leaders. They had come questioning Jesus about some things he was teaching, and Jesus had exposed their hypocrisy, exposed they really about accruing power for themselves, not really in alignment with God's will. Well, now those people are deciding it's time to do away with Jesus out of a desire to protect their own place of authority and really just payback, they send some guards to grab Jesus and get him out of there. But before that can happen, Jesus has a few more things he needs to do. He goes on to teach the people in front of him about what needs to happen for them to find lasting satisfaction. He tells them of his coming departure. Look in verse 33 there. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, very often Jesus says things that are cryptic, a little difficult to understand, and, and so the people misunderstand what he's saying. The verses right after tell us, they think Jesus is saying he's going to go off outside of Jerusalem into the Greek areas and teach people that aren't Jewish 
That, that he, that what he means by he's going to depart from them is he's going to go off far and wide around the, the Roman world. Now, it's not, mis- com- not uncommon for people to misunderstand Jesus. Uh, uh, preacher confession here. Growing up, I had a lot of misunderstandings about uh, Holy Week, you know, Good Friday and, and Easter and all that. Uh, I really struggled. Like, why do we call it Good Friday when we're talking about someone dying? That didn't make sense to me. I was really confused about the fact. Why is it that we, what, what was Jesus doing laying eggs on Sunday? That, that made no sense. And it wasn't until much later that I understood the significance of these things. So don't feel bad if some of the things Jesus says are hard to understand. He, he is speaking here in a veiled, cryptic sort of way. And yet, while they misunderstood what it was Jesus meant, we can understand very clearly what he meant. Jesus is here speaking of his coming departure to return to heaven. You see, his journey will end the same place it started, at the right hand of his father in the very glory of heaven. See, one of the things that Jesus claims about himself, the things that makes Jesus different than all the rest of us, is though Jesus was born in a place on this earth, Jesus is really from somewhere else. He's really the son of God. Jesus really has an eternal being. He is someone that has lived forever with his heavenly father with a unique relationship with him. This is Jesus referring back to the, the reality that he will not live on this world forever. No, there is coming an end to his journey, and that end will be in heaven. Well, the, easy enough to understand. Jesus is saying he's going back to heaven, but leaves the question of how is it that he will get there? You can't exactly book a southwest flight to heaven, can you? Well, Jesus, to get there, will have to, to travel a very difficult road, a road that will go through a little hill called Calvary. Before this Jesus is lifted up to heaven, he will first have to be lifted up on a cross. This Jesus who came to this earth to live must first die. This is what Christians call Good Friday. We celebrate every year around this time, uh, 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 this weekend of Good Friday to Easter, we celebrate the fact that a Jewish man suffocated to death on a wooden cross. And it may seem odd that we call that good, except for the fact that we don't think that was an accident. This Jesus came to earth to do this very thing. He was on a mission. His mission was to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. When Jesus hung up on that cross... He wasn't just a victim of politics or misreading what was going on in society. No, he was accomplishing something. He was paying the penalty for sins so that one day people could be declared innocent before a holy God. This Jesus came to give up his life. He was faithful to that end. He he gave it up all the way to the point where he breathed his last. He was buried in a tomb. We call that Good Friday. And then three days later, something amazing happened. Sunday morning, the morning we celebrate as Easter. That same man that died came back to life. The grave could not hold him. The tomb had no way to resist him. Because he was the very son of God that was vindicated. He truly was the one sent from God. 
He truly is the King of King and Lord of Lords. And by his resurrection, God proved once and for all, this Jesus is who he claimed to be. So how is it that Jesus ends up back in heaven? Well, first he has to die, then he has to raise to life. And then after showing himself to many, he will ascend back into heaven, carried up in the clouds to sit at his father's right hand until one day he returns to judge the world. Well, you may say that's all well and good, Tommy. I I understand what Good Friday and Easter are about. That's wonderful. But how does it actually help me? What does it have to do with this satisfaction that you've talked about? Well, I'm glad you asked because that brings us to the second step to finding this lasting satisfaction, his offer to us, his offer to us. That's in verses 37 through 39. In verse 37, we see on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Living in a digital age, there are a group of people that make their living figuring out what you're thirsty for and offering you a drink. Uh, If you go around on the internet, there are these advertisements that follow you around. They are targeted. They, they have ways of knowing what you've visited on the web, even where you've shopped around, uh, where you've driven, tracking your location and things, trying to figure out what is it you're really after. Uh, according to these ads, apparently I'm really into um, bacon-flavored candles. <laughs> Not sure what I clicked on to make that happen, but that's what they're offering me. Um, now, the reason those ads are effective is that they think they know what you want, And so they offer you something that they know will be enticing. If they can put a product you actually care about in front of you, a product you're actually interested in, the chance you actually buy it goes way up. In verses 37 through 39, Jesus speaks to a thirst. But unlike these online ads, it's a thirst that many of us don't even know it's there. It's a thirst deep, deep within each of us. A thirst so deep that we mistake it for other lesser thirsts. Jesus does this by way of an invitation and a promise. Now, I have to understand the, the context of how he gives those things. It's, we're told it's the last day of the feast. I told you it was a, a seven-day feast. That's a feast that's mostly true. It was originally prescribed in Scripture to be seven days, but by the time Jesus came around, it was actually eight days long. Near the last day, on the seventh day, there would be a a special ceremony that we'd done regarding water. The priests would walk out to this place called the Pool of Siloam, and they would have these golden, beautiful jars. They would fill them with water. As they carried these filled jugs of water back to the temple, the people would be singing Psalms 113 through Psalms 118 over and over again. It was a festive time. People were holding branches to show that God was the giver of life. They were remembering this moment where in the wilderness, God provided water for his thirsty people by making water flow from a rock. That little bit of drama culminates in this moment where the priests would pour the water out on the altar and everyone would let out a cheer. On the eighth day, there would be one last gathering. Everyone would come together for one last 
time to worship God together before they went their separate ways. And I think it's on that eighth day that Jesus stands up and shouts, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. Would have been unmistakable what Jesus was saying in that moment, even if it was astonishing. Jesus saying, remember that rock that provided water? Remember when it was that God's people would surely die of their thirst and God himself gave them something to drink? Well, here I am. If you're thirsty, come and have a drink. He gives an offer. It's a wide open offer. He says, anyone that's thirsty, an offer for everyone because everyone has this desire deep within them, even if they don't know it. He says, come to me and drink. Friend, I don't know if you know that you're thirsty this morning, but you are. Maybe you've been going through life almost on autopilot. Maybe you've just been going from one thing to the next. First it was school, then it was a job, then it was getting married, then it was caring for grandkids. And somewhere along the way, you lost this sense that your life actually matters for something. If you were honest about yourself, you would say, there's not much meaning to my life. Friend, Jesus is offering to you. If you come to him, he will provide you with a lasting meaning. The very thing you were made for, a relationship with God that lasts forever. Uh, maybe you've been going through life pursuing things that feel good. Maybe you've been pursuing pleasure, things that experiences you can have or things that you put into your body. Anything just to feel something, even for a short while. Friend, Jesus is offering you a pleasure so much greater than anything else in this world. The pleasure that comes from being in a direct relationship with God. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Maybe you're carrying around a weight of guilt. Maybe you're thirsty for redemption. You know you've done things in this world you shouldn't. You wish you could take back words you've said or things you've done. Friend, Jesus is offering you a cold glass of forgiveness. A forgiveness so good that you will be declared innocent now and forever if you will just come to him. His invitation is for all of us to find that which we all really need. A relationship with God that lasts forever. How does this happen? He tells us there that second part of that verse. Uh, excuse me. Um, in verse 37, uh, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then 38, whoever believes in me. See, the, the way you drink of Jesus is to believe in him. Now, what happens when you drink? How does he actually provide this satisfaction to you? Well, well that's the promise part of this. It says, whoever believes of me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He uses an Old Testament kind of allusion there of these waters, that God providing life. And he says it's like a geyser will go off from inside your heart and keep flowing out over and over and over again because the life is now on the inside. You see, you drink of Jesus and something amazing happens. He comes and he provides that life to stay with you for the rest of your days. He tells us how that will happen. John does in verse 39. He, he said that. 
about the Spirit when those who believed in him were to receive, for as of yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what Jesus is promising here is if you would believe in him, that he will do something inside you that will make you a totally new person. He will transform you from the inside out. He will give you a life that will start now and will go on forever by his spirit. The promise of the Bible is that not just that you'll be forgiven of your sins, but that God will come and live inside you. That he will be your constant companion. He will be with you through all the difficulties of life. And that life that he puts inside to flow out, to flow out of you, it will one day lead you to live with him forever in heaven. Sometimes people are under the impression that to become a Christian means missing out on the good things in life. As if Christians are just people that have decided to deprive themselves over and over again, somehow to earn credit with God. That couldn't be further from the truth. To be truly alive is to live for God and to know him through Jesus. There's a, one brother I know that really lives this out in a very obvious way. Um, he's, I met him back in Wheaton, Illinois. He goes by the name Manny. And uh, no one who has met Manny will think that he is missing out on anything in life. Uh, Manny is one of those guys that always has a smile on his face. He, he hugs you whether you want it or not. Um, he's, just, he's a wonderful brother. And uh, Manny um, was not always joyful and happy. He's very open about the fact that before he came to Christ, his life was anything but holy. Uh, one time, Manny was sharing his story with uh, someone at a, kind of like a church function. And uh, th this dear sister asked him, hey, how is it you came to Jesus? And Manny has a very thick Cuban accent. And so he responded back, uh, I met Jesus in Yale. And so she said, wow, that's incredible. I didn't know you went to an Ivy League school. And Manny said, no, 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 no. In Yale, like, like prison, Yale, <laughs> jail. So Manny met Jesus while he was in jail. He had been uh, someone that was on and selling drugs. He had been a very violent man. And, and yet he one day met this Jesus. It turned out all the things that he'd been trying to quench his thirst with would never do it. And yet one drink from Jesus changed him forever. Friends, you can have your deepest desire satisfied. You can have that this morning. Jesus is offering it to you. He's offering you to just come to him and receive the thing that you've always wanted, even if you didn't know it. Two steps to find this lasting satisfaction. First, Jesus must depart. Second, he must make an offer to us. And then third, to put legs to all this, we must respond. The third step is his division of us in verses 40 through 52. Many times Jesus think, and people think of Jesus as being someone that is a great uniter. If people just live like Jesus, if we learned a little bit about him, then the world would have no divisions among it. We would all be together. And yet this same Jesus is the one that said he came not to bring peace to this world, but a sword. He came to divide. Not because Jesus is violent, but because you must make a decision where you stand before Jesus. 
He doesn't let you stay on any middle ground. You can't sit on the fence with Jesus. You must decide where you stand with him. And to find lasting satisfaction, you must choose to come to him. In verses 40 through 52, we see the reaction of a group of people to this Jesus and his offer. First, we see the general population in 40 through 44. They're divided over what to do with this Jesus. Some of them think that maybe he's telling the truth. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Some of them think that maybe, just maybe, what he's offering is really what we've been looking for. On the other hand, others, but some have said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Others still have their doubts. He doesn't fulfill the prophecies the way they thought. Maybe some of the things he said were just a little too unbelievable. Whatever reason, they refuse to believe that this might be the one that they've been waiting for. There's another group, one that's not just vacillating between maybe he is, maybe he isn't. One that instead is dead set on their hatred for Jesus. This is the religious leaders. In verse 46 to the end of the chapter, we see them in their scheming. The guards have been flailing about, unable to arrest Jesus. It wasn't yet his time. The people that are in charge, the, the religious leaders, their, their hatred against Jesus is growing more focused. Now they won't put up with any more of this. They are dead set. They must put an end to this troublemaker. There's only one dissenting voice. In verse 50, a man named Nicodemus. He says, hold up. <laughs> Aren't we supposed to at least hear a guy out before we kill him? Yet this group is on the other side of a dividing line. They have decided where they stand against Jesus. He is not a prophet or a teacher. He is not the son of God from heaven. He certainly isn't the savior of the world. He is a problem to be put away, and they would not want to deal with him ever again. Brent realized that each and every one of us must decide, who is this Jesus, and what will you do with him? You know, if you're here this morning and you're not regularly in church, I hope you understand it's no accident that you're here this morning. I mean, maybe someone invited you or you just come every once in a while when you, you feel the, a religious impulse of some sort. I, I hope you feel welcome. But I hope you also know that you have to decide, is Jesus who he claims to be or not? There's no question that matters more in this world. It's the difference between having the deepest longing of your heart satisfied forever or going about trying to drink seawater never to have your thirst quenched. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, there's an invitation being given to you. Come find the life that you've been looking for all along. You don't have to clean yourself up before you do it. You could never earn it. But if you trust that this Jesus, maybe, just maybe, he is who he claims to be, then friend, don't leave here without drinking of this Jesus, without believing of him yourself. If that's you here this morning, or maybe you have questions you're still working through, come see me after the service. There'll be some people down front. We would love to tell you how it is you can drink of this Jesus yourself and find the lasting satisfaction in your heart. For all of us that are Christians, we need to remind ourselves 
that on Easter Sunday, we are people that believe a man died and came back to life 2,000 years ago. And we believe that that wasn't just a random act. We believe that was the undoing of death itself. That when we have believed in this Jesus, that that life that brought Jesus out from the grave is actually now inside of us. And it satisfies us in a way that nothing else can. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you are a Christian and yet you've been finding too much, too much satisfaction in something that is not itself the living water that Jesus provides you. Maybe it seems like a particular sin will lead you to happiness. Maybe it's something good, but you just recognize, like that testimony we heard from Gene, you're just putting too much weight on a good thing. This is a reminder. Easter Sunday is a reminder. There is no life like the life that Jesus gives us. Let's find our thirst in our souls forever satisfied in him. If you're having trouble cultivating that sort of a heart in yourself, let me just give you a suggestion. When you're at lunch, Easter lunch or dinner, one of the best ways you can cultivate that finding enjoyment in Jesus is just to talk about what he's done in your heart. Just talk about what he's done in your life. You can just start your sentence this way. Let me tell you how I found Jesus to be what I really need. As your pastor, I'm just challenging you, all of you that are members here, at, at lunch, find somebody that you can tell how Jesus has satisfied you in a way nothing else can. Well, in this story, we see the example of how a group of people, they don't know what to do with Jesus, and as a result, they don't drink of him. And yet there are so many that have put their trust in this Jesus. They have believed in him, and they've found his promise to be 100% true. Louis Zamperini had that happen in his life. God answered his prayer. He did live that, uh, to survive those 47 days in the life raft. After that, his troubles were not over. He was in a prisoner of war camp in, uh, in Japan. He endured horrible violence and abuse. Even after he was rescued from that at the end of the war, his troubles weren't over. He was haunted by the trauma he had experienced he went looking for something, anything that would alleviate his pain. In his case, his thirst brought him to the bottle. He started drinking a little and then too much. He became an alcoholic. His life started spiraling. In his desperation, his wife begged him to just come with her to a Billy Graham meeting. Louis did. And one thing Billy Graham said stuck out. He asked a question to the crowd. He said, friend, are you satisfied with your life this evening? Louis knew he was not. And so he went down the aisle and he prayed a prayer and he wrote about it in uh, his autobiography. He said this, he said, I waited. Then true to his promise, he came into my heart and life. The moment was more than remarkable. It was the most realistic experience I've ever had. I'm not sure what I expected. Perhaps my life of sin or great uh, my my life of sins or a great white life, light would flash before my eyes. Perhaps I'd feel a shock like being hit by a lightning bolt. Instead, I felt no tremendous sensation, just a weightlessness and an enveloping calm that let me know that Christ had come into my heart.
friends, there is no one that can satisfy the longing in our hearts like Jesus. He alone can give us these living waters, a geyser gushing out from our hearts, so much life that it can't be contained, all because Jesus is the Son of God sent from heaven, the one who was raised to life on Easter Sunday. Let's pray.